Hi everybody, this week we'll be talking about the Grand Food Bargain. I'm gonna start over. <laughs> yeah, you gotta say what we are. Hey everybody, welcome back to Reader Beware. I'm sitting here with Alexis Russell. Hi Alexis. Hi. Uh, Zachary. Hi Zach. Wasn't gonna use my last name on this project, but that's okay. Hi Rotor, how are you? <laughs> we can we'll, go we'll back. Keep out and, post. <laughs> and I'm Thomas Rotering. Uh, today we are gonna go over a book called The Grand Food Bargain. It's written by Kevin D. Walker, and it's basically a survey of modern food systems in the United States. So if you're not an expert in agriculture, buckle up. And if you are, please don't write in. Uh, a little bit of background on the, the author, Kevin D. Walker is an experienced professor at the Michigan at uh, Michigan State University. He grew up farming and served in the USDA or the United States Department of Agriculture. He's also worked with the National Academy's uh, Institute of Medicine and National Research Council um, as a consultant to foreign governments and the World Trade Organization. So he's very experienced and his book goes over a lot of different aspects of the food system from production to raising animals, um, it goes over a lot of the distribution systems and a lot of the issues that affect us, even if we don't um, see them on the day-to-day -day or hear about them very often. Um, we'll also link his email in the description if you want to shoot him an email. I'm sure he's a very nice guy and he'd love to hear from you. <laughs> I was kind of so, kidding when I said we'd do that earlier, but we will definitely at least link to a uh, lecture that he did, right, Rotor? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a free webinar. Um, it's titled, Is There More to Food Than Calorie, Taste, and Nutrition? Um, so, no, just kidding. <laughs> a quick summary on the book. The Grand Food Bargain is about the mountains of cheap food Americans eat or throw away. It's a pretty sweet deal. But as we learn more about what means that means for our environment, food safety, and employees, we start to realize what the true cost of an overflowing cornucopia really is and the debt we are incurring to finance it. Walker goes back and forth between three main voices in describing our modern food system. He begins with a narrative voice, um, which kind of tells stories about his life as a farmer and in his professional career. Um, he really digs into the meat of the issue with statistics and facts based on sort of his lecturing voice that really gives you the facts. Um, and then he ends with the cherry on top, which is his ideological section um, that really explains what it all means for better or for worse. Um, it's one of my favorite books I've actually ever read. So go out wow. and buy your copy today. Um, it's a nice wow. fusion of science and advocacy that I think is, um, it, it really hits the mark. So I hope you give it a read. Um, 
Anybody else have anything to add about the book? Wow, that was such a big statement. I can't, wow. One of your favorite <laughs> books ever. I'm sorry, that is that is impressive. High praise. Um, yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was really cool because I'm a big science nerd and he kind of wove that into just a very conversational tone, which I appreciated. I appreciate that although anecdotes are not by any means everything, his use of anecdotes and personal experience, whether it be traveling abroad and experiencing what their food system is like or growing up on a farm, which is something I know nothing about, it was just very effective and it very artfully tied in the greater message behind that chapter when he brought in an anecdote at the beginning of it. So I was very impressed by that. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. I think it's funny that you two have highlighted like different aspects of knowledge distribution that he utilizes throughout the book in terms of like giving you just the in the weeds, detailed science behind it. Or also I have an antidote. It's a short story about how this interacts in the real world. And it to me, it says like, yeah. it, it seems like he's being very thoughtful in terms of how we constructed these chapters because it seems to either I don't know what he was trying to do, but it definitely seems to have spoken to different types of learners and, and knowledge interpreters, or can at least um, speak to different groups of people when he gives you, hey, you just want the details, here's the details. You want a story that kind of ties that in and makes it relatable, here's that story. I found myself thinking it was kind of long. I thought that like there were several chapters mm -hmm. where I would have trimmed the fat and like cut things down and out of, but to be honest, I now that we're having this conversation with the three of us, that's probably not the right approach because um, I would have cut on antidotes, but I think that's probably just like my preferred method of reading these types of books. And so like probably shouldn't have cut them out because not everybody reads and interprets things like me. Yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, I thought, you know, part of being a true expert is living through the experiences in addition to sort of your more nuanced understanding of the system. Um, and, you know, I'm sure sitting through however many meetings he did, um, he probably feels the same way that it's a very broad uh, topic and it's almost impossible to cover every aspect of that in a book that people would actually not just set down after, you know, a month of reading, even though it took me a while to read, I have to admit. I was uh, going through a move and on planes, uh, as you both know, but um, RIP, you're very book. enjoyable very enjoyable read yeah r.i.p my book yeah why don't you tell that story rotor lost his book on the airplane because he was flirting with a girl well that's woman, excuse me, a young woman <laughs> a young woman might i add oh no i was i was really getting into <laughs> it that's... i was not i wasn't getting into the conversation i was getting into the book but you know i had other priorities in the moment um, definitely going to buy another one, though, because it's a good one to have on my shelf. So go out and get your copy today. All right. Um, so the author goes through uh, four parts. The first part is taking stock, where he describes the relationship between us and food, um, as well as the different ways we consume it. Part two goes over the different forces driving our need for more and our production of more. Um, part three goes over the unexpected consequences of that setup on the environment, on our systems, and uh, what it means for us. 
And then part four goes over decisions that each of us make in our day-to-day -day lives about the way we approach problems as they crop up and about what we can do to sort of resolve those problems or engage with our government, with our food, other things like that. I think one really interesting thing about this book is the kind of like zoomed out view. I think uh, what Walker, the reason that, that Kevin Walker writes this book is probably because um, there's just a really a real lack of understanding to our relationship with food in the 21st century, um, given that we can just go to a supermarket and buy whatever we want and we don't ever really have to ask the questions of how did this get here and uh, what, how was it grown? What were the methods and processes and like overarching superstructures involved in getting this food to my table? And so I think it is a really fascinating and important book in isolating how big business, um, global politics, and just the day-to-day -day purchasing and consuming of food all interact and coincide uh, or interact together because that's that's really the case. That's kind of how our modern food system has been built and uh, I think a lot of us don't understand it um, and even after reading this book I still don't like I understand pieces of it and have like a general conception of Walker's understanding of it but yeah I really don't still have an understanding of how it all interacts and I think it's one of the larger superstructures in existence when you really zoom out on it like it's larger than any global government it's larger than pretty much I don't know there might be another business segment that's larger but I doubt it um I, I think that the, how big it's gotten is truly fascinating. And the way that this book explores the ins and outs and pitfalls of that, um, I found particularly interesting and educational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's also so fundamental to all of our lives, obviously, because, you know, you can you can choose not to drive a car. You can choose not to smoke a cigarette. You can choose to do a, a lot of things in the world, um, but you really can't choose to just abstain from eating. And basically, you know, based off modern ways of living with cities, you're not going to be able to grow your own food and not everybody is going to be able to, you know, provide for themselves nutritionally. Um, and so I think engaging critically with those superstructures you were just talking about, Zach, is, is really important. Definitely. And I think with something this big... I'm sure we'll talk about this as we get into our critical questions. If you're new to the podcast, which probably most people are and will continue to be, but uh, we typically attack this in three segments. We're just we're doing a little synopsis here at the top and quick review. We'll talk some questions, critical questions that we all had in a second segment that will probably take up uh, the majority of the time on this show, and then we'll conclude with um, just a little review and kind of revelations that we had at the end of everything. Um, so that's just a brief roadmap of where we're going, but I, I definitely think the um, the influx of capitalism here is 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 something that we'll for sure talk about a lot as we get into the critical questions that we all have and um, the different thoughts and, and ideas that percolated as we read through some of this stuff. Alexis, did yeah. you have any any general you know comment or thoughts on that? No. No, okay. I just wanted to loop you in. You seemed a little, you know, you're just out there. Thank you. You're welcome. I I know when my friend Zach and Rotor are on a topic that I'm just kind of actively listening in, and, and then there are conversations that I'm actively engaging in. I've known y'all a long time. I know how this works. Don't worry, I'll talk plenty later. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> well, we hope to give you that opportunity, and I'm sure you'll jump in if you have something you're opinionated about, as we always do. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, well, let's move on to our second segment uh, where we'll be posing three critical questions. Um, but before we do, I want to let you know that today's podcast is not sponsored by the USDA. The United States Department of Agriculture have concerns about the use of GMOs, pesticides, water use, even social equity? Well, just have your lobbyists pop on over to 1400 Independence Avenue in Washington, D.C., where you can sit down with a bureaucrat who has both of their hands tied behind their back securely. It's likely someone has already outbid you in the Senate, the White House, or even down the hall, but they would always be happy to direct you to their website for more information. The United States Department of Agriculture, built by farmers for business magnates, finally, a solution for the wealthy. It's your time. All right. Well, thank you so to much to our not sponsor. <laughs> Thanks for the not sponsorship, USDA. Um, so, with that, let's move on to our first question, um, which I believe is from Alexis. It is. I'm so proud of myself. I, I came up with some good questions this this month. So, our first question is. Actually, there's no question in this. Um, there, it's it's a statement, rather. So <laughs> our first statement that we'll discuss is, Walker does not approach the grand food bargain in an intersectional way. Although he does recognize the plights of other countries and seems to deeply appreciate what he has learned abroad, and although he does address issues of poverty in the book, he never once brings up the way that race interacts with these problems. For example, I admire the way he covered SNAP benefits towards the end of the book, and he quite artfully deconstructed the argument that people will abuse social programs, so we shouldn't have them. But I don't think anyone can, with a straight face, address issues like poverty and food insecurity without acknowledging race. Walker loses credibility, in my mind, because this, to me, demonstrates that he is shrouded with privilege and is at least marginally out of touch with reality. Thoughts? Question mark? <laughs> it's not exactly a question. Oh, yeah, there. There's a question. <laughs> yeah, by the way, that book that Roder loves is one of his favorite of all time. It's racist. That's what Alexis is here to say. <laughs> Whoa. So for me, I, I think maybe this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, that, um, you know, this is such a huge topic that affects everybody on the planet so profoundly. I think I think that's fair to call out he didn't address race, but at the same time, like, how long is his book supposed to be, right? Do you think he could have just looped that into the book without much other content, or do you want, like, its own chapter? Do you want the book to be about race through the lens of food production? I think we should start this by backing up just a minute before we, like, I didn't mean to spiral us into one-on-one -on -one class here, but... I want to fight. I, I think it's worth talking about how, Roder, how would you say that, that Walker does address um, some of these concerns throughout the book? Because I think there are some parts that do speak to um, minority populations and even populations of different races or ethnographies, um, but it's, it's not as much as I think it probably warrants. But I don't know. I think it's worth talking about the things that he does talk about in the book before we jump into the hey, should he have talked about it more and how should he have talked about it? Um, well, do you have maybe like one example of when he did sort of loop in race or one that really stood out to you? Um, because 
I think he addressed the systems and talked a lot about poverty, like you said, Alexis, but, you know, didn't explicitly call out um, something like, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but something like food deserts um, that primarily affect people of color. Um, did either of you think he sort of walked beside that issue or sort of tangentially addressed it? Uh, the, the reason I wanted to back up is because I do think there is at least a couple of points in which Walker does address some of these things. Um, I, Alexis did phrase part of it in her question. Uh, he talks a lot about some of his travels abroad and how developing nations that did not win the resource lottery, as he puts it, his, his argument is that like the United States is one of the most enriched resource pieces of land on the entire planet. And uh, the people that ended up here got really lucky when at the time that they did with the resources that they had to like keep control of that land for as long as that we have. But he does point to places like um, Brazil. Uh, that's the oil production, right? Um, he, he points to a cup. He points to banana production in Chile. He points to oil production in another sub South American country. I should have came prepared. Oh, the the rubber farm. Um, yeah, that was built by clearing um, forest in Brazil. Yeah, was it? It was Brazil, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that he does speak to like some some ways that this interacts on an international level. Where I find it lacking is on like the micro level of in this country, in the United States, given these things, how, how do we how do we interact with those populations? I don't think he explores that very much. Like, how do we interact with minorities in our own country? I actually found like his global analysis fairly compelling and like reasonably well couched and decentered from his own perspective. Like, I'm sure the dude is very privileged, much like all of us sitting here. But I, mm -hmm. I thought that he spoke pretty responsibly about some of the differences in international food production and the ways the United States is particularly advantaged over other countries and the way that it leverages that in probably not very ethical ways. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that he did um, address the abroad issues and the international issues really well. And he did touch on race in those instances. And as Roder kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, maybe he kind of meant to imply that of course race isn't is a factor in these issues because you know he doesn't come across as some like callous racism ended with slavery type of dude or anything like that um so maybe he was just kind of going up to that point and maybe he didn't feel like it was his place to but as i was saying to zach a couple days ago when we talked about this a little bit I feel like it's my duty when I read something to look for that intersectional piece. And to me personally, um, I do notice when an author takes a sentence or two to say something about their privilege or to acknowledge, for example, I read a lot of feminists who happen to be white and I keep a very, very sharp eye out for them to take a little bit of time, not a full chapter. It doesn't even have to be a theme necessarily throughout the whole body of work, but just to acknowledge their privilege and to acknowledge that they don't necessarily understand the way that different intersections um, and intersections of identity interact with the issue that they're talking about. So to me, that would have made a really big difference. And I did not see that when it came to the domestic part of the problem. When it came to the international part of the problem, like I said, I think he did a brilliant job. Um, just not so much when it came to 
in the United States. Is there anything um, you would have liked to see added um, about that or maybe just sort of like a disclaimer on his part of where he's coming from and where other people may be coming from? Well, he did bring up a few times um, like rural areas. I hate that word, rural. Um, and it, it may be because he obviously grew up in a rural part of wherever he grew up. I don't remember. And that's um, the people on the so, front lines of the, the food production process. True, true, absolutely. Um, but I think it, it kind of felt really relevant to say, you know, just as there are issues that uniquely target rural areas when it comes to food there are also issues that are unique to urban areas when it comes to food that would have been an easy tie to to like use that as a way to contrast like um the the struggles of two different types of people like i i think you're right like there probably was a couple of places that were easy opportunities to do that without making the book seven chapters longer or and even even an additional chapter longer um which i get from rotor's perspective like you can only say so much but there really is very little said at all about um, the struggles of people that have food and food issues or food insecurities in the United States. It's almost like his assumption is because we have so much wasted food, um, we should be able to resolve all this, right? Like we should be able to just distribute the wasted food in this country to everybody that's hungry, and you know that that'll happen and we'll solve that problem. And that's a food system problem, not a not as not as um grassroots of a problem i guess is that convoluted that sounded convoluted a little bit but i think i see your your point um like i almost wonder if he thinks that these are easily resolvable problems in a world where like the levers of power aren't solely focused on profit motives Hmm. yeah so maybe something more pernicious is like lurking under the surface which is racism so it's not as easy to solve these problems with like a new policy or a better rulemaking process, it might be something deeply ingrained in the fabric of our country. Yeah, sort of. I, th- I think like at least exploring the potential for that world to be true is, is would be, um, I, you know, would, would add something to the book rather than subtract anything. One line that I thought was really interesting on the second to last page of the book that I think is particularly relevant to this conversation. Um, Walker writes, Politicians and businesses leverage the hunger of the most vulnerable to skirt around structural and economic inequities. It's almost like his disdain for the people at the top of the equation overwhelms his sympathy for the people at the bottom because he acknowledges there are most vulnerable and hungry populations, but his argument is that they are pawns of the elite and that we should not we should not listen to the elite when they try to highlight some of these different inequities of people um, in places like food deserts or wherever else. Hmm. I think maybe we should still listen to those plights, but still reject the weaponization of them. You know, like like you still listen to the stories, but and you feel for them and you try to empathize where you can. Um, but that doesn't mean you go on to enable a problematic policy in the future. In my mind, there's not a, I don't see this as black and white. Like, isn't there a world where you can address the concerns and the, like, problems of people that are the most vulnerable populations in a policy? Like, if you're crafting a policy, shouldn't those things be taken into account? Yeah, you don't want to weaponize them, but shouldn't there be, like, specific things you're doing to still try and, like, sympathies only go so far. Those are thoughts and prayers. Like, what can you do for me? 
you know, what are you going to do to help me in, in starving or my food insecurities? Um, well, I guess what I'm saying is that you should still enable a platform for people to discuss their problems and hear them. I'm thinking like a test, like, you know, people can testify, you can write into your legislator, people could be on the news, we can highlight those stories. And I think that is an important step in the policymaking process where, you know, you define the problem and you define where people are coming from and you get that message out there. Um, but if it stops right there, then you're right. It's just sort of the thoughts and prayers that don't lead to anything. Um, but if that goes on to enable smart policymaking or a restructuring of the system for the betterment of those people, then you have a positive situation on your hands. But I, I don't think you can. All I'm trying to say is that, you know, it's it's par it's an important part of the process to listen to people and listen to their concerns and their stories. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think we're in agreement here. The only thing I would add is like the next step is then figuring out how you can address those concerns and like not weight other people's concerns above like different populations. Like I think everybody's concerns are valid and the solution probably should be very nuanced in how it approaches the problem and you shouldn't weaponize any concerns anywhere. You should look at like what is the problem and how can we solve it and you're probably going to have people upset with you on the left for capitulating to the whims of the capitalists and people on the right that are upset that you're capitulating to the whims of the oppressed. And like, I don't know, I, I, I think you probably the real solution to address it. There is. I, and ah, I'm rambling. I think there <laughs> is a solution in the middle somewhere and that addresses multiple people's concerns and applies them in a policy action. If you're going to make a policy action, you better not be advantaging one group over another because you're just tra trading like forms of pain. Huh, yeah. I'd like to get your, your thought on this, Alexis. Um, what, would you, what would you think about me saying that in order to get any change, you need to weaponize people's stories. You need to find a narrative or at least elevate a narrative to make change happen. I know that the word weaponize has a negative mm. connotation, but isn't it true in some regard that we are mm. fighting a war and that we need weapons to create change? I mean, listen, when it came to the sparking of the Black Lives Matter movement, it was one incident that sparked that. When it came to the Me Too movement, it was one incident that sparked that. So I think it's pretty clear just from movements that we've seen within, what, the last decade, five years maybe, that that is sometimes the case because I mean, women were being sexually assaulted way before Harvey Weinstein was under attack, and black men were being murdered unarmed way before it was Ferguson PD that was kind of on trial. But for whatever reason, um, you know, those specific narratives are what sparked outrage and activism more zealously than it had ever been sparked before, um, except, save, you know, the civil rights movement, I would say. So... I, I, I don't want to say that it's completely necessary because I think that we do see small movements sometimes made um, on a more like local level, um, at a very low level like political type. So I don't want to say that it's completely impossible for things to get done 
um, kind of above the fray. But I think that it goes very far and becomes a whole other conversation when the people are enraged. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating take. I think I would. I think we disagree here, which is uh, comforting because Alexis and I agree on a lot of things. So it's nice to disagree once in a while. Um, I, that's a very. I, that's a really eloquent way to, to phrase that, and I think you're right that like in in certain instances, um, specific narratives can be correlated with movement change. I think my argument would be that it is a correlation that it's not exactly causal. That these incidents came at times where several. Th- in many cases, hundreds or thousands of smaller incidents primed the public and shaped public opinion to prepare them and make them ready for this incident. Because it wasn't the, I I mean, it wasn't exactly that people were getting killed by cops and nobody was saying anything. Like in the 1990s, it was very prominent discussion that was occurring and we didn't see a movement happen despite the fact that individual narratives were utilized and weaponized to try and create like change to the criminal justice system. It actually like did the opposite in the 90s it actually influenced um like racist white politicians and elites to crack down on crime and like those narratives mm-hmm. probably caused i don't know they probably caused they probably were related to some of the crackdown and tough on crime movement that happens out of the clinton administration and beyond so while i think that like there are correlations of these individual narratives I don't think that it's causal because I also don't think mm-hmm. one narrative sparked the Me Too movement. I think that like the way that we have been reshaping how we think about men and women over the past hundred to two hundred years is particularly Got us ready for that. Yeah, I think this is just the next. I I don't know. It, it's a it should have happened a long time ago. Like a lot of these steps, but I I think that it did. It comes at a time where it's a natural progression in the long view of history's treatment of women. And like yeah, there's a lot like of narratives. It wasn't said. one narrative in the Me Too movement. There's like I, I can think of fifteen offhand. Like sorry. Yeah. yeah. I like what you said about us kind of being primed for this moment because I don't mean to say that there was just no activism going on or that there were no women their experiences, because there absolutely were. So um you're right. You're right. Like our society, I guess, kind of just was ready for this movement to really explode the way it did in the specific instances that they did. But that's not directly correlated with just, you know, Mike Brown or just Harvey Weinstein. Like, no, there was a lot. And I don't want to understate the activism that has been going on on issues of race and um, women's rights because it obviously has been. So, yeah, I get that. Yeah, and if I could just maybe interject here, I think that what stories are used on either side, you know, there's the idea of like the welfare queen that was pushed by, um, I want to say Clinton. Reagan. It was Clinton, wasn't it? Maybe Clinton. Yeah. Um, so we, we always, you know, we elevate stories that support mm-hmm. our position a lot of the time. And I think that mm-hmm. while everyone has their own experience and their own truth about their life, um, sometimes you elevate specific stories that you feel represent a broader trend or represent your position 
um, you know, every state of their union. It's like, I talked to Bill in, uh, you know, on fourth and main and he told me X. So that's why we're doing Y. Um, and maybe he's the only one in the whole country who thinks that way, but you still elevate specific narratives and like Rosa Parks too. I, I seem to remember learning that she wasn't the first woman to be asked to give her seat to a white person um, or the first lawsuit based off that. But it just so happened that, you know, she was a very good test case to push forward a broader movement and push it into the spotlight. So, you know, we all do it. And I think it's important to be mindful of the ways that you do it. But telling someone's story can be a tool. And so it might not be good or bad. Should it might be based it? on how you use it. Should we do it? I think so. Yeah. If, you, if your constituent tells you something, you should probably tell their story because we react as humans to stories and we want to empathize and we want to hear from other people. And I mean, that's what government's for, right? Is, is the good of a social broader whole. So we should collect and tell those stories maybe it's difficult for me to like think that that's the role of the politician because it does it is inherently manipulative and it's inherently used to advance your own position and platform in politics it is very rarely used of like this is what the data says and here's one unique example that like is um is relevant to that larger trend in the data I think the framing of it is disingenuous and I have trouble thinking that we should do it when nobody's willing to be like um, responsible in the framing of these issues. If it's just going to be used as as a weapon, I think we're better than that. Like in some ways, like if you are truly trying to get to the heart of a problem, then individual stories can be effective, but like they don't really tell you what the problem is. In many cases it tells you what a problem is for one person like mm. or was and sometimes it's representative of a larger trend like the black lives matter movement for example would be one where i think i think that the stories um are representative of like the overall messaging i don't know this is tough i after this discussion maybe i've changed a little bit on it or like wavered in my certainty but i i generally find it disingenuous when it's done and i have and, and so it like defaults me to have not a ton of respect for the people that use that as the main tool in their toolbox. Yeah, there might be also be a difference between, you know, uh, someone who's been in the Senate for 12 years in the federal government, um, you know, elevating someone's story to get their amendment passed on an important bill between that and someone who sits on the town council who just had their neighbor tell them that there's toxic sewage leaking into their yard and then they pass something with the town council, you know, like, I think the closer you are to your constituents, um, if you're in government, and that it's probably a much more ethical situation, because a lot of times on the local and state level, policies get passed because there are problems, and people tell you that there's a problem. And so you try to fix the problem, and you use their stories as a justification for what you're doing. Um, but the further removed you get from that, and the further abstracted things become, maybe these stories are just kind of like myths that you use to push whatever you want 
in certain ways. And there's probably good examples and bad examples of, of both of those things. But That's probably the best way to, to talk about this segment. There's it's complicated. Examples, there's bad examples. Well, because I'm just sitting here and thinking like Kim Kardashian and Kanye West elevated a ton of individual stories of people that were convicted of nonviolent drug offenses. And guess what? President Trump fucking pardoned them. Like, I think that's a great example of highlighting individual stories and like using it to create policy change. But that's also like really specific because it's these specific individuals and their individual cases that you're reviewing as you pardon people. So I guess it is a little case by case. Also really agree with Rotors. Like the more zoomed out you get, the less genuine, genuous um, the stories become. In one story, in one individual person's experience matters a lot more on a local level than it does on a national level when it comes to like, what are the problems? Just the sample size, right? Like that, that alone makes the individual story more relevant in a small town than it would um, for the entire country. Relevant, this is bad framing. This is an elite way to talk about this because I feel like they're all relevant. It's relevant for sure, but it's just like relevance in terms of the structure or relevant in terms of the individual experience is what I have difficulty parsing. And sometimes I feel like it's strategic. Yes. Like, I was just looking at my notes because I, um, there was a speaker at our school who wrote a book about Plessy versus Ferguson. And in that, I learned that Plessy was strategically chosen for that time for this lawsuit because he was actually white presenting. He was mixed race and he presented white. So they used him specifically for that. And Plessy was on board, um, but I think that it, it, it makes a big difference between if we want to, to label something as genuine or not genuine, the people actually being used in that narrative, their like consent for it makes a really big difference. You know, another example of that is a client that we're working with in the Innocence Project. You know, she told us straight up, like, I don't want money. I want to be a voice and I want you to use my story. But we asked her specifically what she wants, like what her end game is, you know, and someone else would validly answer. I don't want any spotlight. I don't want to be targeted. I don't want my family to be targeted. Just I want this to be done. And that's perfectly valid. But I I don't think that it's disingenuous to do something that might look like you're using someone maybe as a pawn um, when they're fully down for it and they just want change to happen. And they they recognize that they are that pivotal that pivotal player that is needed. That was um, well put. I always I find it difficult for me to engage in some of these conversations because I'm not viewing this as like an us versus them thing and I think a lot of times people that are on the ground floors of activism typically are framing it as this is a culture war and it's us versus them and Mm -hmm. I am the key cog in the machine that can make a difference or the key narrative in the picture it's it's a chess game and like I don't think that's good i feel like that viewing it as a game and viewing it as an us versus them dichotomy inherently leads to us not like valuing each other as individuals and not seeking to understand the other's perspective first and like that seek to understand is something that everybody could do better with but i I think it becomes harder to seek to understand when we're viewing this as a game and viewing our specific message is key to winning the battle per se when like yeah sure we can call them battles but that's not like these are 
These are ideas mm -hmm. that we're grappling with in many cases in like understanding somebody's motivations for having an idea, I think is a mm -hmm. prerequisite in a lot of cases to actually coming to some kind of amenable solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. like you at least tough. have to address the understanding, even if it's off something like from fake news and like a, a decades of being brainwashed, uh, being propaganda, you know, being fed propaganda through Fox or CNN or whatever, right? Like you still have to understand where they're coming from in many cases to actually take that next step. Yeah, that's a tough um, bar to to jump over. It's a tough line to cross because like, you know, when have you arrived at an understanding of another person? Probably never. But you can do your best to seek to understand and listen to their opinions and thoughts and, you know, genuinely give it a good faith effort to understand them. But the legislative session may only be so long or the rules making process may end in a month or people may suffer in the meantime when you're trying to understand everybody who writes you an email or gives you a phone call. So, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm kind not of saying sympathetic that to those should... who... Go ahead. Sorry. I, I would just say, like, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the people who, who are, are asked by their constituents and by their voters to make decisions and feeling like they couldn't possibly make a decision in the face of seeking to understand everybody's intersectional identity. Isn't that lazy? Shouldn't policymakers seek to understand the holistic, like, you can't understand two million people, but you can understand a multiplicity of perspectives from different sides of the political aisle and like Have you ever to seen represent that done? Your, your constituency as a whole rather than like representing 50% of your constituency. Well, for one, if we have and we actively as a society prioritize having diversity in those levels of government, it won't be a bunch of middle-aged white dudes desperately, even if in good faith, desperately trying to understand the plights of minorities. Because guess what? They are women. They are gay people. They are Muslim. They're a mixture of all those things. And they have that understanding. And not only that, but they can spread their their narrative and their lived experiences to the halls that they walk in yes. also this might be That's really cynical but rotor your point when zach followed up and said is that laziness to me in my mind that is people trying to guard and protect the sap the status quo which protects their privilege and protects where they are sitting and the money they are making why disrupt that so that might be really cynical okay and i know that not all white politicians are like that but there are also politicians who make it their their mission to be the exact opposite of that and they pull it off just fine first right. awesome i just want to i'll let you go rotor and respond i just want to say the biggest thing that i agree with like a million percent with alexis here is that when you have more diversity in congress congressional people are exposed to people that are not like them on a more frequent mm -hmm. basis which opens their perspectives up and makes them understand more routes to attack a problem and so like just walking the halls with people that are not the same is so key. And that goes from not only race and gender, fucking education levels, man. I would say that it's a double-edged sword to prioritize um, understanding a diversity of opinions. Because while that goal is noble, if you spend all or most or even 50% of your time as a legislator or as a rulemaker seeking to understand everybody's perspective, 
um, that may maintain the status quo because you're tied up in trying to understand other what people. What do you think seeking to understand looks like, though? I, I think that the best I think example we're about this much that, differently. Yeah, yeah. So I think the best example of that is, you know, holding maybe a long town hall or a good testimony period where people can bring their perspectives and have time to tell you their side of the story. Um, but, you know, there's an idea in qualitative research of like reaching saturation where you're hearing the same thing over and over and over again. And at that point, when you when you have been presented with a diversity of viewpoints on a law or on a, on a rule or on something that the government's doing, I think that it's up to you to vote according to your conscience, your constituents and your caucus. You know, like at a certain point, you have to make a decision because if you don't, then the status quo will be maintained and you won't have any ability to impact the situation as it currently stands. So I could take it too far and say, oh, we don't have time for that, which would be horrible. Or I could take it too far the other way and say, we need to thoroughly understand everybody and make time for everybody to have their voice heard in the halls of government. And I think that that leads to a blockade on changing the status quo. It feels to me that you're giving politicians not enough and too much credit all at the same time. <laughs> okay. Well, like, here's the deal. Do you, I don't think that it's talking to every single person. I think it's trying to understand the opinions and perspectives that you most viciously disagree with as a person and trying to figure out what motivates and what pressures are, are framing that person's perspective. I think Alexis is, I don't think your comment directly engages with Alexis's point that if diversity is prioritized, you don't have to have long town halls. It's just going to naturally occur from working on bills with people who are not the same as you and working with staffs that are made up of different types of people as you. You can like, it, if it starts at the top, you don't necessarily need to talk to 2 million people. I don't, I'm, I'm never thinking like this is, I need to call everybody in my district or listen and hear every single person out. I think it's more like trying to have a diversity of opinions that are different than your own that you are seeking to understand not just the monolithic group of people that think kind of similar to you mm -hmm. because of their race mm -hmm. education and grow like upbringing mm -hmm. that sort of brings us back to maybe uh food? our first question yeah. <laughs> how's this Alexis? all tie into food <laughs> you know the way that we prioritize certain types of food could be forwarding a specific way of eating, which is inherently cultural, I think. And mm -hmm. so the cheapest foods, the most accessible foods could often be those which favor a certain type of person. And, you know, our gut biomes, our genetics, our culture definitely influence how we process food. And so maybe, maybe even there's a broader discussion in food systems in terms of what foods we make accessible to people who may not be familiar with certain types of foods or who feel their culture is being co-opted by a food company which um, forwards caricatures of who they are in order to sell a product instead of respecting culture on a calorie level, on like a culinary level. And Alexis wrote something in the prep document about food deserts. And I think that like really plays into to that, but I don't wanna step on her. Um, analysis because I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, basically what I was just talking about is that 
um, published earlier this year in our very own Courier Journal, it was written that across Louisville, more than 44,000 people live within food deserts, meaning that they can't easily get healthy, affordable food. Inadequate food access is linked to higher rates of illnesses and lowered life expectancy in predominantly low-income neighborhoods. And the issue is costing taxpayers millions of dollars in emergency health care. Um, you know, also, I just think about kids going to school and trying to get through learning for a day when they're hungry and they don't have enough protein or calcium or whatever. I'm not a doctor, but, you know, it's it's just shitty. And, and I know for a fact that most of those 44,000 individuals are from West Louisville, which, if you research, um, experienced a significant amount of white flight. Um, and it's pretty much, you know, it's a black neighborhood and they go through a lot of crap, um, which I, I got some insight to in my environmental law class, like, wow, um, but also food deserts. So, I mean, it's it's just, it's crazy. And it's just impossible not to think about that when you're reading a book that uh, rightfully draws attention to the fact that Americans are almost always surrounded by a surplus of food or can get to one in a 10 or 20 minute drive, you know? I mean, I think we've all worked in the food industry and one of the worst things is at the end of the night when all of the extra food goes in the trash. Um, so I, I'm not trying to at all take away from the thesis of, of the book, but, you know, just got to poke little holes in it. And, and it's not Walker's fault that there are food deserts, you know, and I don't know exactly where that solution would even best most effectively come from, but had to bring it up. Yeah, great point. I think uh, with that, we will move on to our second question. Um, but before we do that, I need to change my laundry. So. All right, so we're going <laughs> to pause the recording here. <laughs> and I'm lazy, so I'm going to not edit daughter. this out. And we're back. All right, so we're going to move right into our second question, which is Zach's. Yes, um, so for this week... Uh, just to peek behind the curtain, we all kind of like come up with different questions uh, that we could potentially discuss and then as a group kind of vote on what we think is, you know, the most relevant or the most interesting. So this week, Rotor and I had a question that was very similar, uh, and that's this one. And the other two questions are Alexis's because she's smarter than both of us. So that's... That is damn right. <laughs> a lawyer. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my question uh, is at the end of the book, Walker concludes that governments do not lead, they follow. He quotes David Kessler in saying, the greatest power rests in our ability to change the definition of reasonable behavior. My question is, do you agree with this conclusion? Is one's power primarily in the ability to educate the populace? Yeah, and my, my question was similar um, because it gets to the heart of the same issue this sort of idea that maybe, you know, there's there's an interplay between who really controls the world. Is it you and your everyday decisions and the way that you influence the fabric of society? Or is it, you know, the oligarchs who control everything? Um, so my, my question was a little bit more wordy, but I'm just going to get through it real quick. <laughs> In light of the sophisticated corporate political activity that industries like Tyson, General Mills, and other food companies engaged in, how can we protect Americans from being ruled by those companies? 
It would be like a de facto corporatocracy, if I may. Um, if nothing else, I think that the scale should be tipped as close to balance as possible when Americans and their representatives make decisions about what to eat, where their tax dollars go, and what to believe. That means setting up firewalls between the industry and regulatory bodies, strengthening campaign finance laws, and supporting credible journalism so that we know what's true and we know that the people making the decisions are not making them out of a financial consideration. Ultimately, though, I'm not optimistic that any law or new regulation will prevent the rich from controlling public policies. It might be a human resources issue um, where we need more good and honest people to hold their values up in the face of immense pressure to be corrupt, both financial and otherwise. Um, but, you know, I'm not optimistic. I think the rich people are always going to have a stronger voice. Um, based off Citizens United and based off the fact that businesses are thought of as people legally. So, you know, if you have more money, you have a louder voice. And that just means you are going to be able to influence policies better. That might be what the founding fathers envisioned, but um, I'm not sure it's the best setup and I'm not sure it's going to change. Mm. You want to go, Alexis? I mean, yeah, rich people, man. Let's get rid of them. That's Here, the answer, well, right? How are you going to do that? I think we're What's gonna your definition have a, of rich? I think we're going to have a good what? discussion here. Um, okay. Because <laughs> I kind of tend to think that it is our own individual choices that frame and shape the reality that we exist in. And if you think about if if everybody in america that wasn't a rich person changed their choices in the supermarket and changed their relationship to the food production process wouldn't that solve the problem yeah, yeah. it would because it would change the incentives <laughs> it would change what's profitable to make is a capitalist i i think i agree with many of the um, points that rotor brings up about who controls the levers of power in america but that is perceptual they perceptually control the levers of power in america I think there's very little that we can do on the perceptual level to like fight that, but we can change our choices on a more micro level that kind of force their hand in many instances. I'm kind of resigned oh, yeah. to live in the world that we have because I don't know what else is one better for human lifespan because human lifespan has increased except for this year, right? Like human, like the average human lifespan is increased in the U S in the U S yeah. specifically, but like before this year over the long scale of history or, um, lifespan has continued to increase especially under capitalism that actually exploded and like there is i think there is value to certain aspects of capitalism and the only way in my mind to um to create the perceptual institutional change to create that top level framework change to give the people power again is by completely underpinning the systems of capitalism that has brought us many benefits. I think there's ways that we can affect our individual choice that continue to keep the benefits that that system provides us while still creating real change in the way that capitalism operates. Because we do have the power. There are so many more of us than there are them, and they cannot survive when we're the ones that actually pay them and give them money. We're the reason the economy functions. Consumers. Yeah, um, I think that that's true. And I think if everybody in the United States who made under a million dollars a year did anything 
it would drastically change the system. Um, but, but maybe an issue with that sort of loops in with this idea of um, a few different books that have come out over the past century. I'm thinking of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair um, and Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring, which I read in school. Um, and these are sort of foundational books that highlight the problems in different industries. People get outraged and policies change. Um, and, you know, those are awesome examples of people, you know, getting pissed off as a group and forcing change. But I just don't know if that's possible today, because if you have lobbyists with their thumb on a representative or a representative who controls an agency or an agency that is bound by, you know, an industry, and then you have these huge media companies and all of our media is filtered through, you know, very complicated marketing and digital mechanisms that kind of churn it all up and digest it for us before we even have access to it. I'm just not optimistic that there can be that grassroots change on an issue as big as and with so much money as food. Maybe. I think this is back to our conversation from the last question about society being primed for a certain moment at a certain time. And like Alexis gave us a mic before the show we were talking about the central park five sorry the um what are we calling them now exonerated exonerated five, five. um and she watched a documentary called uh, when they see us as many people did and that documentary brought attention to the case and got them acquitted after being falsely convicted of like really violent and horrible things and that is an example of this occurring on a micro level no it's not a book it's not the jungle it's a documentary. I think media has changed, but the ability to persuade masses of people through um, th through like uh, art creation and media creation still exists as a platform. And you can tell those messages. You have to just be more strategic and um, well-versed in new media to be able to do so. It is much harder to sway public opinion with a book like The Jungle. But I don't think that society can't be primed to make different decisions about the food system. I think that we already have seen a big shift in the way that society views meat. And I'm sure that we'll get into this in the next chapter, or in the next question a little bit. Our last question is related to climate change and food production. But I, I think that society is kind of already moving in that direction, but it's more of a long view history, short view history thing. It might not even be in our lifetime, but I, I think that it's, maybe it's too late at that point, right? And that's the argument. But at a certain point, I think you can get to those those kinds of decisions, but it takes it takes the build up. It takes a long period of things, and then maybe a documentary appears at the right time when we're primed to mm -hmm. lead to some kind of decision making or final um, solve. I don't know. Yeah. Did you want to jump in, Alexis? I think I'm kind of in between you all um, because it is easy to experience a deep sad sense of pessimism when it comes to these things especially on the heels of an election like 2016 um, but you know for one I, I don't think that we can give up because there are so many people not benefiting from privilege like we do who don't really have a choice they have to keep fighting because it's their life every single day and also, I am very sympathetic to what Zach is saying, and 
a quick correction. The Exonerated Five were exonerated before when they see us came out, but I think not, there are other examples. Not when I see the Central Park Five documentary in 2012 by Ken Burns. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that but there good. are plenty of other examples of like that of that like Centoya Brown who um, was convicted of murdering her child trafficker that trafficked her, um, Adnan Syed from the Serial podcast. And lots of others. Um, so I don't know. And like Zach said, like now is the time to be like vegan or plant-based in America because, I mean, what fast food place doesn't have the Impossible Burger now? Seriously, I just learned the other day that White Castle never had it. It scares me for some reason. I just can't bring myself to. But they have like an Impossible, you know, meatless burger. So. I think that that because if you talk to people who've been vegan for decades, they're like, wow, this really just exploded. You know, like the market for this has exploded. The research, the funding, the investment in this area really has if you look at it. So although like emotionally I have my days where I'm like, wow, yeah, Rotor's right. Like, fuck this. Basically, nothing's ever going to change. And some of our fellow beings are, you know either despicable or woefully ignorant or a mixture of both. Um, but, you know, on most days, I, I definitely agree with Zach. And I think that there are a lot of examples of that. Really, we do. We hold the power. Now, what I said about rich people still stands. But it doesn't mean that we don't have, uh, like, all the powers of people, because I think we do. Hmm. Yeah, I think... Um your example of the exonerated five is a great example of how elevating a message and getting it out there so that a lot of people hear about it can create change and it can, you know, bring attention to really important issues. Um, but something where there's a lot of financial interest and there's a lot of money to be had and lost, I think that the pressures and the pushback that they face are a little bit different. And I should, you know, say most of my experience comes from studying the tobacco industry and the very complicated and powerful corporate political activity that they engage in, where, you know, maybe a local ordinance get passed and then the tobacco industry donates $10 million to get it reversed in the next election, something like that. Um, but your example about the Impossible Burger is also interesting because in my mind, you know, Impossible Burger has a ton of oil and fat and salt in it. And it, it might not be, you know, that much better for you than a, another form of, you know, animal-based meat. Um, but the way that it's packaged and the way that it's sold is this revolutionary new thing you need to go out and try because it's changing the world. And, you know, companies have done that for decades of, like, Is that the motivation? Salt. Isn't the motivation more about climate change? Like, isn't that a little bit of a miscontextualization of the Impossible Burger? Maybe. I don't know how it's being framed. <laughs> when you see an ad for Burger King's Impossible Burger, does it say like, save the earth, buy our Impossible Burger? I mean, they didn't invent it, but that's what the people that invented it, like, invented it for. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm not confident that it has even signaled a reversal in sure. any form of, sure, sure, sure. you know, global production or that it's but, created any change, but it's, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you're cars? optimistic. What about electric cars though? 
like there's a bunch of money tied up in cars. You said that you're not confident that this kind of narrative, like isolating, can create change when there's a bunch of money involved. Okay, sure. We talked about that a little bit with like the um, acquittal of a bunch of non-violent drug offenders during the Trump administration. Those are these individual cases that are kind of like the exception, not the rule when it comes to changing systems. I think cars, though, kind of disprove that in the fact that electric cars are being viewed even G I think it was the owner of GM that said electric cars and self-driving cars are the future and it's only a matter of getting there at this point um, I don't know if it was GM it was it was one of the major CEOs of uh, it was the CEO of a major car manufacturer in the United States and they like were quoted as saying that electric cars and automated cars are the future and it's just a matter of technology and I think that that's an example of people forcing the hand as well because you do see a decrease in car sales year over year um, and you do see like major disruption in that industry at large and you see even the people in the industry acknowledging that disruption and like trying to get ahead of it because yeah there are financial interests to gain but we can all step back and go okay sure maybe they use coal mines um, to generate electricity to charge some of charging cars so they're not like the best but still we're trying to get more wind and more solar in different ways to produce energy in this other battle so let's assume that the we get that world figured out electric cars are probably the route and the way for the future um, because they're not polluting with fossil fuels which is a finite uh resource which is often assumed to be infinite i think cars kind of yeah. disprove it well i think i i mean i don't want to be like you know overly contrarian but um I think that a lot of electric cars still get their batteries charged from coal-fired power plants. I frontlined or... against this. <laughs> Assume that we get, like, that's a separate battle a little bit. This is a little bit looking at it in a vacuum, sure. Yeah, and like um, the author points out, you know, corn subsidies were sort of champ, they were heralded as like the future of uh, car fuel that like our technology would get better and we'd find better ways to synthesize fuel out of corn and that would solve on some level for gasoline production and you know we didn't get there <laughs> but we still have tons of corn subsidies so i think there's sort of this idea that um you know you see something like the impossible burger or you see a tesla on your street and you're like wow the world is changing um when in fact if you don't pull back and if you don't look at the overall energy grid or the overall food production system it might seem like you know we're everything's getting better like we're going to overcome when in fact in a back room somewhere on capitol hill they're saying drill baby drill in the arctic and that means that with a surplus of supply gasoline cars become cheaper and you see those trends start to reverse and so what i'm saying is that while those are great things and we should continue to elevate them and like look to them as the future if you don't have the people at the top also supporting that message it might be futile <laughs> to like do that and I, so or i just think just we're in the slower? early adopter phase if you look at it like a technology bell curve i'll give it to you alexis i've talked a lot i can probably not talk for a little while okay. um i just think we're in the early adopter phase of a lot of this technology we saw the the fastest production and like innovation of technology than than ever before in human history and it's gotten us to this point so one i don't know i don't want to like rely on the trend of technological growth for the future 
But I certainly think over time that technology does continue to develop and we're just kind of seeing the roots of that percolate. And we're thinking with like 10 years thinking, not hundreds of years thinking. We're thinking with 2019 like conceptions of the world and not 2020, 2219 conceptions of the world. Go ahead, Alexis. Yeah, I don't know if it would be futile if the bigwigs wherever don't come around because they're not going to come around super fast, I don't think. But it, it might be a very slow process. Like, I don't think me and Zach are saying like, oh, we're going to see, you know, everyone go meat free or everyone drive an electric car in our lifetime because in a lot of ways those lifestyles are still not totally accessible um but another thing is that you brought up how you know money is really everything when it comes to changing movements and i do agree but there is a lot of money in not only like the impossible burgers of the world but also like completely other stuff i learned about basically like um like test tube chicken where right now it's super super expensive to develop and it's not being sold um but uh, basically they take real like a piece of real chicken animal protein whatever and they just they grow it so yes an animal does technically have to be sacrificed for that all right i know some vegans are like yeah that's bad what yeah okay but it, there will come a time when that is more accessible and it might taste the same and they can you know they're scientists they'll figure it out just like they did figure out the impossible burger and before that it was like tofurkey which was actually horrible but vegans like dealt with it because it's all they had you know so there there is smart investment by very rich people being put into you know, technology for electric cars, I'm sure, to make them more accessible, you know, and there's definitely investment being put into like the plant-based market or whatever you want to call it. So there's not just money on the side of the people trying to maintain the status quo. And furthermore, even if we have to be patient and wait, I'm not a very patient person, but eventually they will come around. We might not be around to see it, but they'll eventually, eventually have to change if society gets so absolutely moved in a certain direction right as alexa said something about a meat-free society i took a big bite of steak and i thought that was funny is that what you're eating <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah that's we that's are the encouraging what's that i just said we are the economy i agree with alexis the, the other thing you said it's all about money it is all about money but guess what we're the ones that make the economy run and if everybody that made less than $200,000 decided to stop spending on consumer goods tomorrow, that would be detrimental <laughs> to the, everybody at the top. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that is encouraging. I feel encouraged. Um, <laughs> I would just say yeah. that, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I can rethink about those backroom deals as sort of the, the last hurrah of a dying generation of people who want to maintain the status quo in the face of enormous grassroots change, um, which is a lot more positive way to think about it. I think that um, maintaining strong access to good journalism mm -hmm. and news is important because the only way I could see those at the top effectively managing uh, grassroots ideas and buying practices is if they controlled all of the academic research 
all of the news media and, you know, all of how you know what you know, which, you know, again, I could get cynical about, but there are good journalists and there are good sources of information. And I think that's the way that we sort of break out of that simulation. Definitely subscribe to at least one newspaper that you trust. <laughs> because... Yeah, you, gotta you renew my Breitbart subscription. Well, <laughs> I just mean, like, you have to make those things economically viable. We have to... You, you only have power that independent news is viable if, if people are willing to support it with their pocketbooks, and, and we should. Yeah, totally. And local news. Yeah, particularly. More... This is going off into a different topic. Let's circle back to the book. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So I think um, a good policy change would be set up a firewall between the rulemaking process and the companies, because what you don't want is the CEO of Tyson sitting on the USDA's decision making board. And while that's, you know, kind of an extreme example, I don't think it's a very uncommon setup where you know people who sit as ceos or the cfo of, of one board are also on this other board or maybe they transition into nonprofit life and they sit on this board and also that board so i think there are smart regulations that we can push for that would maybe uh, make that transition to the will of the people a little quicker yeah isn't the department the current trump appointed department of agriculture also like a former CEO of some major food lobby group or something. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I think it was discussed in the book. Sonny Perdue, um, veterinarian and businessman. I'm not going to do this on air. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that there's like nefarious answer, uh, examples excited beyond that in the book too um, that kind of highlight that it doesn't matter really who's the president. This kind of seeps its way into power uh, at different points in history, and it is something that certainly should be rejected um, because of the nefarious consequences. Yeah, it's the deep state, man. I don't know about that, but like, <laughs> but but corporate dollars are always going to try and buy power. That's like that's there's a whole chapter in this book about um, how we become a market society, and I think the antidotes about Adam Smith's book, or at least it like heavily cites the Wealth of Nations like foundational capitalist reading. And how that it's like, oh, it's moral to act in your own self-interest, actually, because it makes the economy grow, which makes things better for everybody. Um, and, like, there's some interesting things to be said about understanding those people's motivations and how to effectively speak to them, but also acknowledging, like, okay, so that's where they're, how they're playing. Like, here's how we have to adjust knowing that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of the, the game. I like the chess match. Um but I know I sometimes come off as elitist, so I gotta I watch that. I just think it's not the it's not the truly good faith way to think about it. And like I want to be really good faith, no matter who I'm talking to about trying to like under, I don't know. I I think that understanding is very very important. Hence my like vigorous rant about it earlier. That makes sense. Yeah. Great. Well, any more discussion on that question? All right. Good. Well, I think we, just to cap it, I think it's very much like we're debating grassroots and um, like overarching government change and leadership. It's kind of like the question that's asked at the end of the book to lead or not to be led. And there are fascinating approaches 
but at the end of the day, I think we both can acknowledge there are historical problems and we're kind of living in an unprecedented time in terms of how people are reacting to those long histories of problems. And is it this grassroots underpinning or is it we're truly all doomed and the only way is to like fight back in dirty tricks using like the same dirty tricks the state uses? I don't know. It's a fascinating yeah, debate. And, <laughs> and I should clarify, I think that we all have a duty to act in a moral way and act in an aware way. I'm just saying we, I would also put a high premium on the people at the top. And I want good, honest people in the back rooms making the deals. And I want them to be held to a higher standard. And maybe when they're there, they can like get rid of the deal making thing. Well, when they control the maybe. levers, of, that's what I mean. Like when they control the levers of power, don't we want to live in a world where those deals aren't made? Like, <laughs> so are you saying we should destroy the levers, or that we should just have the right person on on the lever? <laughs> I don't. What? Okay, give me an example of a backroom deal. We're supposed to transition questions. This is going to be fun. Sure. So, like a backroom deal would be. Um, there's a new rule coming out about the standard for cleanliness in a chicken farm across mm. the country. And company A wants more stringent rules because they know they're better equipped to meet those rules. So they'll hire more experts, they'll clean more regularly because they can handle it. But when that rule passes, company B isn't prepared to handle that. So they know, company A knows that they'll get a better market share after this new regulation passes, making things more safe. But admittedly, company A has something to gain out of the more strict rules. Who made the backroom deal? Like the the, the governor or, or the uh, like legislator that was lobbied to by the whatever company A? Sure, like okay. the bill sponsor yeah. in the so Senate who's having is, a meeting with company A and company B. So my what I'm saying is that we shouldn't be taking those meetings <laughs> and that you should be like acknowledging, talking to the people, maybe at the like ground floor of the company, but not the hired lawyer. I, I don't think like the hired lawyer's company spin on that is particularly relevant to whatever problem they're looking at. I think they should like send people to talk to people at the bottom of that plant that are working on the front lines, because oftentimes people on the front lines have the clearest view of the immediate tangible problems um, that are being faced. Like the cash register is not working. The CEO is the last person to know. Yeah, I mean, the CEO probably has a better understanding if, you know, five or six for, different stores. <laughs> but he's motivated but he's motivated by profits. And if he's inherently motivated mm -hmm. by profits and by seeking self like um self advantagement, I, I just don't think I want a place for that in government. I, I think that that's I, I you want to work in good faith, like truly trying to understand what the problem is and move from there in, in diagnosing a solution. Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. It all—it would almost be like a jury where you can't, you know, um, what's it called? When you influence a jury, it's some, it's some metaphor about cleanliness, like you dirty the... Alexis taint? Question. taint? You poison the, the well or something, taint, taint the jury. The jury. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that would be interesting. That would completely rework all of our governance. It reworks so. lobbying, but like, that's, how much does that, I don't know. Like, it does rework Well, I mean... Lot. It reworks a lot. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, and also a lobbyist is, is a bad word, but like if you want an expert and you trust an organization, you'll ask their lobbyist to help you write the bill. Like it's just kind of how things work. 
Well, and beyond that, like, think about this book, right? It cites several examples of, like, we're not only trusting them to write the bills, those we're also trusting them to, like, do their own inspections and, like, other, uh, do their own safety tests on products. Like, the USDA is not, is literally, like, giving companies authority um, to do their own safety and, um, you know, other tests uh, on site that probably should be government regulation. They're like, what did they say it was? Voluntary capitulants or something? Like, the book said there was a law passed in the USDA, like it was more stringent food right, restrictions and stuff, and the USDA was like, oh, voluntary compliance. They, they said, like, uh, <laughs> basically we're not enforcing it. We're, we're asking stupid. for voluntary compliance. So yeah. It's very hard to get someone to understand something when their job depends on them not understanding it. So <laughs> you're like, hey, this is too dirty, you know. No, it's not. I want to keep my job. Next question. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap up with our third, this segment with our third question, um, which has to do with the environmental impact of global food systems. And I believe that question is from Alexis. Sure is. Here we go. Especially in the unintended consequences section of the book, the author talks a lot about climate change, yet he never once mentions the impact that animal agriculture has on climate change. Published on October 10th, 2018, The Guardian reported, food production already causes great damage to the environment via greenhouse gases from livestock, deforestation, and sorry, water shortages from farming and vast ocean dead zones from agricultural pollution. But without action, its impact will get far worse as the world population rises by 2.3 billion people by 2050 and global income triples, enabling more people to eat meat-rich Western diets. BBC reported on August 8th, 2019, that a quarter of all global emissions come from food, more than half of food emissions come from animal products, and half of all farmed animal emissions come from beef and lamb. Walker remarks on the issue implicitly, like when he posits that agriculture uses 70% of all global fresh water, when he says that animals are not the most effective way to get calories, and when he states that 79% of all nitrous oxide in the atmosphere comes from agriculture. But the point is not made explicitly. I think that is irresponsible and kind of dishonest. Thoughts? I tend to agree, and I really like steak, and I'm currently eating it. <laughs> It is like a, a significant part of the conversation that just feels missing. Like it's it's just not responsible not to touch on it or at least posit some kind of professional opinion on the matter given the facts. And like I get it, man. He grew up on a farm and his his family's life and livelihood probably would be a lot different if they were not sending cows to be slaughtered and making money off of that. And I don't want to take away from farmers, although you know, the art of farming is less and less appreciated and farmers are kind of suffering more and more in part because of the, the grand food bargain. Um, Something like 80% I don't, of all I don't farms wanna, corporate. Yeah, I don't want to demonize those people. I've always said, because people ask me why I'm vegetarian and I say, listen, if we all had to do what farmers did, or Native Americans who also, like hunting is kind of like a spiritual thing to some Native Americans, like, Trust me, a lot of people would not eat meat, but in a world where we can go to the to the store and get chicken that doesn't have a face or even skin, 
then it's fine. Like the dissonance goes away and, and we don't feel icky about it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like it would be vastly different if people had to actually engage with what was happening like farmers do. But like you said, the like family farm type thing that people might think is like basically a myth now. And that yeah. is really messed up. It's not like totally, totally a myth, but it is for all ostensive purposes of like the larger trends conversation a myth. Mm-hmm. It's like solidly the majority of farms that are yeah. operations. And I think just getting back to the whole um, greenhouse gas emissions from, from farming, I think that's like a true externality, right? Speaking in economic terms where the company doesn't care about the cost to the environment and the consumer also is never really affected by the cost to the environment until our environment starts to break down and until we we see you know rising sea levels emerging infectious diseases all of the other increase in wildfires we could go on and name more effects of of climate change or global warming um but i think maybe to pitch a policy idea to y'all like how would you feel about just you know a a tax on those carbon emissions that go to the farm and that means that they could either increase their prices and maybe the market would somehow internalize that cost or maybe the farm would internalize those costs and reduce uh, production do you think like a carbon tax to farms could help the situation at all <laughs> i i definitely do i mean i don't know if i would put the money there uh but on the carbon tax thing i vigorously nod every time i hear it because like in my mind that's the only that's the only lever that the state can pull that will have a significant impact on climate change and this is where i differ from my opinion on a lot of other things i do think the clock is kind of running out there and it's not necessarily that it's going to be the next 50 or 60 years or whatever. I think we are seeing like some pretty mild impacts of climate change already. But I think in the next couple hundred years, it's for sure over. And I think that science is pretty well founded that unless we start to change our ways pretty significantly, the point of no return is fast approaching. And that's what I'm more concerned about. It's not that we're going to be on the train when it goes off the rails. It's that when we're off the train, it's going to be too late for anybody else to get off that's already alive. And so I do think that like a carbon tax is the only way to truly influence capitalism on that. Now, would I subsidize farms with that money? That's a more nuanced debate. Probably not. I I tend to agree with Alexis that I'm not sure. I'm kind of okay to let the free market decide on that one. Mm -hmm. Like if if that is not what is profitable and people just stop making meat, I don't think that'll ever happen. I think you'll always have like at least at minimum smaller operations. Like boxing is still a, a millionaire sport in the United States and the market <laughs> for that is so smaller than it used to be. Um, boxing used to be the thing. It was bigger than football in the 1930s. Um, and so, I, I, I don't know. Carbon tax, way yes. <laughs> Climate is, is the number one issue. And I'm, you know, that's the only thing I believe that on. Yeah, I think... Uh, taking some lessons from tobacco taxes, um, it has to be high enough to actually motivate people to not eat as much meat. And it also, that money that the state collects must go towards climate mitigation 
and carbon fixing technology and taking care of people who will be most affected by climate change. It can't be peddled off into some other program that, albeit, you know, that money may go to good uses in providing like medical services for people or providing, you know, education funds. But I really think that the government would need to make a good faith effort to put that money that they collect towards helping the environment and helping those affected by the environmental changes. Um, but there's also this idea that that would always be regressive. You know, if you're if you're budgeting every dollar at the grocery store and suddenly meat is 10 more dollars expensive, you're not going to buy meat. But, you know, if you're making $70,000 a year as a single person living in a city, you don't care if it's five or 10 more dollars like you want a steak. So you're going to buy a steak. Yeah. It's a good point. Capitalism inherently creates class divides, which afford people different luxuries. That's like a function that's inherent to the system in many ways. Yeah. Many How do we make sure that benefits. happens? Go ahead, Alexis. How do we make sure that that happens? That like the money goes where it's supposed to be? And also, like, can we talk about how realistic it is? That this would ever happen. I mean, what? Because I mean, I, I I don't remember the times when the tobacco tax was imposed. I don't even know when that happened. Um, but I I wonder like what people's reactions were. Like I bet they were pissed. And thinking about that, um, for me, like it might be almost as bad as guns, man. Because you know, people like to think of their stakes as like just a way of life. I mean, at least some people. It's an identity people. issue. There's a certain part of the population. <laughs> okay, is. not yeah. as much as guns, because that shit is bananas. But you know what I'm saying. Like, what do you think it would actually be like? What are the chances? And then if it does happen, how do we make sure that that extra money goes where, Rotor, you said it needs to go? Well, my mind is spinning with all the information I have for you. But I think the most important point is that um, you have to fight on every front to make sure that that money goes where you need it to. You have to fight in the legislature to make sure that pie doesn't get cut up and sent to you know, uh, special interest projects. You have to fight um, in the courts to make sure that the state is held accountable to the actions of a legislative ballot. A lot of times with tobacco taxes, it passed via like ballot initiative. So if the state didn't do what they said they were gonna do, it could be illegal issue um but also something interesting that companies have done and would probably do is say you pass like a one dollar per pound tax on red meat what a meat producer would do is before that passes flood all media with like this is going to sink our business you're not going to be able to afford Mm -hmm. meat this is an attack on our way of life right after that one dollar tax passes they increase prices by $5 per pound. And suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, like this is so painful and it's this huge shock. But the government didn't do that. The companies did that as a way to work against the government or the people and say like, oh, look look what you all of a sudden have to do because of the government. That's so evil. Are you serious? Yeah, meanwhile, they make out big because they're selling for... They're selling for a higher cost, which means that they can internalize that price increase and also just put it on the backs of their consumers, and they make out big time. 
So I'm sorry, I'm perplexed. That is heinous. Yeah. It's always important to like remember that truly self-motivated actions occur at at the risk of in the game of capitalism of like, or I guess under the justification (laughs) of taking care of yourself. And also, I know I talk a lot about tobacco, just because <laughs> that's what I'm studying right now. Oh, but yeah, good. Um, it's in, also important to know that um, until 2007, Kraft Foods was owned by Philip Morris International, who makes Marlboro cigarettes. Um, Philip Morris International bought Kool-Aid from General Mills in 1985. And then they made Capri Sun with a lot of the same marketing techniques that they used to sell cigarettes. Um, RJ Reynolds bought Hawaiian Punch and a lot of their product lines and marketing techniques specifically designed for um, and tested on children for tobacco were then used for selling food. So, you know, it's not outlandish to imagine a lot of the same techniques and uh, you know, structures could be borrowed from something like the tobacco industry, which is admittedly like, you know, a pretty extreme example of, of bad capitalism. Um, and there's actually, um, an internal memo from one of their, uh, one of their lawyer groups that was made public after the master settlement agreement in the early two thousands. And if I could just read a quote from it, um, this is from the kind of chief lawyer, to their marketing team and it says doubt is our product since it is the best means of competing with the body of fact that exists in the mind of the general public it is also the means of establishing a controversy so i am so cynical about what these companies say and what you hear on tv because you know you could be in a meeting and say hey we're on the wrong side of this but we're just going to confuse people and create a controversy. And then at Thanksgiving dinner, I can argue with my dad and, you know, we can both throw up our hands and say like, ah, it's complicated. Well, maybe we'll never know, but that maintains the status quo and that enables companies to continue doing whatever may be unethical at the cost of all of us. So that's why I'm just pissed off in general. <laughs> He's in his angsty teenage years. He never really got out there until now. Just now, listening to Rage Against the Machine yeah. all day. And, yeah, uh, governments are really... <laughs> you got the speechless there, Rotor. Yeah, no, with the Lexus, that's it's tough to look at. The, it's I'll a get really, off my soapbox. It's a really depress, depressing way to... Um, it's a depressing reality that certainly exists like in the tobacco industry um, and a history that needs to be learned from in many ways. Yeah, I still think we're too early on the. Uh, I still think we disagree on the vaping stuff, but that's a podcast for another time. Oh, probably no, not. We're not getting into it. <laughs> no, I won't get into it here. I think it's good to acknowledge though that that's that is a very extreme example, as Rotor does admittedly say, of people doing like, like truly not using morals other than Adam Smith's invisible hand of capitalism to like frame their decision making. And in my experience in business, I've, I've worked with several Fortune 500 companies at this point. I, gen, I pretty typically interact with the C, C, C-suite level individuals there. And flex, I don't Zach. see, well, I mean, everybody's also talking to their specialties and I felt, uh, felt insecure. No, yeah. Time. My friend Zach, man, he is got a stacked resume. No, it's Seriously. Capitalism's <laughs> gross. 
But I, don't, I do feel like many people have morals of different of different sects that we cross over in very important, like end of the day questions. Um, and there are very similar lines uh, that can be framed as like general human well-being and, and, and public uh, ownership. There's a part of the book where Kevin Walker talks a lot about how it's like the individual ownership and the decision-making process that is the problem. Like we all don't take ownership in it. Farmers don't take ownership in it. Businesses don't take ownership in it. It's all about profit motives, right? It's not, we're really divorced from the decision-making. I, I don't see that everybody in business that I've interacted with is is divorced from the decision-making process. I'm sure that it, I'm sure that it's true in many parts, but it's definitely not true for all. And I, and I would probably argue that the majority of companies do have people with at least sound moral and ethical judgment that are making key and important decisions on a daily basis. I hope so. It, it's been my experience. And that's, I am like a general cap. I'm generally a capitalism ca has caused a lot of harms thing, but I also don't think it's the, the people in many cases in that a lot of times people do check for certain harms and learn from the mistakes of capitalisms on that individual level. And it affects their decision-making as an individual, like from that point, which I guess speaks more to the grassroots conversation that we were having earlier. Yes. So one thought that I've just been having in, in, in my brain, um, where thoughts usually are evidently, um, <laughs> in, in an effort to bring nuance, which is a buzzword for Zachary, and Ugh. intersectionality, which is a buzzword for me. Um, oh, when I when I talk about veganism and plant-based diets and, and making that quote more accessible for all people, um, truly I mean for all people, and it, it, it is not lost on me that as Roder, I think, Roder or Zach, one of the two, said food is cultural. And so the people who uh, tend to rely on meat a lot for their staples and the recipes that they've had for generations are, you know, people who were who were brown and, and black. And that's kind of their cuisine. And in fact, I know a little bit about some of the African-American um, food traditions uh, actually derived from slavery and the fact that they were not given the best parts of, of the cow to eat, you know, so they had to make do and, and that's been passed down, which is very valuable for sure. So just to be clear, when I say that I hope that more investment is made in these cool plant-based things and like also the education of it and people being educated that you can do a lot with beans, you know, you can do a lot with lentils, like things that people don't really think of. I want that to be truly accessible, which is not for people who, you know, are privileged, um, but also for people who are like really not privileged and who might be, they might hear this conversation and roll their eyes because it seems so unattainable, you know, because they don't, they don't know, or it, it's just too expensive in their eyes. Um, they're just too busy because they've got kids and jobs and things. So, just want to be clear when I say accessible that I truly mean accessible and not just for like wealthy or quasi wealthy like university people, you know. And to add like or soccer another, moms, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I totally hear what you're saying. I think that like one thing I think about as you say that is to make it truly accessible also means acknowledging that it's a it's a staircase or like a ladder. There are different rungs and. Like you said, there are people that'll hear this. I'm sure there's lots of people that would hear this conversation and totally roll their eyes and disregard <laughs> what the dialogue that, that occurs, right? But 
they're not going to immediately jump to hearing this podcast after listening to like a teacher talk about why it's important to debate things or something like there's a bunch of levels of education that have to occur at certain points in that journey and realizing like what those small steps are to get to that ultimate level of education or that ultimate result that you want is the only way to truly make it accessible because people exist in different parts of that journey. Totally. totally. Yeah. And um, to sort of jump back to um, issues of climate change, I think that the way we talk about climate change is sort of like, you know, everybody should do their part to reduce climate emissions, but, you know, Pakistan, maybe not, maybe they don't have the infrastructure or the money to like, you know, yeah. switch to solar energy all of a sudden and asking them to do so would be asking those who are least equipped to handle the problem and least responsible for the problem mm -hmm. to make a change that hurts them in the short term and probably the long term on the international level. So yeah, on your day-to-day -day life and in the halls of the United Nations General Assembly, you should recognize where people are coming from and not be elitist like I often am. <laughs> well, it's, it's like looking at you, China, but not so much you, India. Well, maybe still a little yeah. bit of India. A lot of class problems there. True. But not yeah, Pakistan. <laughs> right. That's a great point. Way to bring us back to the uh, the issue at hand. Sweet. Well, with that, I think we will move on to our next section. But before we do, I think we're going to hear a word from our not sponsor. Zach? This episode is not brought to you by Monsanto Bayard. Are you spending all day fighting weeds that have taken over your fields? Do you need a pesticide that will kill everything? Well, look no further because Monsanto Bayer has you covered. With Monsanto Bayer, you'll knock down those weeds, bugs, harmful pests, and even a few of the local school children free. Monsanto Bayer working for farmers and for Satan. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. All right. With that, we are going to move on to our last section, um, which sort of gives us each of us a chance to talk about maybe areas where our mind has been changed or certain misconceptions about the situation with our food systems that this book has cleared up. Um, does anybody want to jump in first? I think that this book gave me a, I like a lot of education just in general and it's it's difficult for me to isolate a specific area where my mind was changed because like said earlier i'm generally on the default that capitalism is has caused a lot of harms across industry and has kind of gotten to a point where it's not been managed effectively or regulated effectively um and they're certainly using tools of technology to like maintain their position of power and blah 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 blah, blah. and so like i a lot of the things made sense with kind of understanding where we're at in the world and the quickness of the development of technology and the different economic forces that are involved with food production. If it changed my mind on anything, it was like further reinforcing my, um, that, that kind of letter be led that last chapter, the reinforcing my idea that grassroots movements are ultimately like it's understated and kind of underrated how, how important grassroots movements are and what that truly looks like. Cause I think the definition has gotten a little lost in modern political context, but that individual relationship to decision-making that is a theme throughout the book 
is something that I'll definitely keep in mind as I go into the grocery store and make my own purchasing decisions and try to be a more ethical consumer in, in certain ways. I think that, that key component that we're all a part of something here together, it, we're not just living in, you know, it's not just all in a, we're not just in our own realities in a vacuum. Our decisions impact many others. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Alexis, did you have any yeah. sort of misconceptions or things you changed your mind about? I don't think my mind was changed about anything, but I think I gained some perspective and appreciation for, I guess, rural folks, specifically those who um, depend on like agriculture for their livelihood. Um, I took a photo of some pages or excerpts that really stuck with me. And on page 71, Walker writes, in just two decades between 1992 and 2012, some 31 million acres of farmland were lost to development, on par with losing the entire state of New York or most of Iowa at nearly three acres per minute, the equivalent of 3,200 football fields each day are being lost to non-agricultural uses. And then at the bottom, he's talking about when he visits his family, he says, I'm reminded of how once productive farmland became an elite subdivision. Within it are homes exceeding a million dollars in value. When developed in this way, the soil that once grew food now holds zero value. In the minds of the, develop the developers and buyers, there's little difference between dirt and soil. And I thought that was beautiful and really represents how farmers have a very, very, um, exquisite affinity for nature that I'm not even going to pretend to be pretentious enough to ever disregard that. Um, it's It truly is an art form and to see the land uh, kind of being I don't know in their eyes of course misappropriated and of course we need development and we need denser cities and things like that um, but I mean you know the the history of like mankind is all about this kind of stuff you know using the land to survive and having a relationship and a reverence for nature and um i don't know it's just it's kind of um i guess sobering to read something like that and recognize that because uh, you know the plights of farmers aren't really things that i have spent a lot of time appreciating uh, but this really did help me um, kind of just get a little bit of insight into what it's like um, for them. And it's sad. Yeah. It also makes me sad for the environment. And like, because I don't often think about the environment in those terms, but there is like definitely something to be said about the proliferation of development and a certain sadness that that brings of like, you know, it's all artificial versus what's natural. And I don't know should it's a whole ecoism perspective for me we are ultimately part of a planet and you know we can only be so conscious of that but yeah yeah i don't, how, I don't really know how to articulate it <laughs> i think i would uh i'd echo what you just said zach and thank you alexis that's a great point yes, and i also yeah. really appreciated you know getting a an insider look into what it means to be a farmer and have that relationship with the land um, but I, I guess I would also bring up what he said about how, you know, nature doesn't need our protecting mm -hmm. in a lot yeah. of ways because yeah. we're kind of just here and nature is going to take its course. Um, 
And if that means it has a fever, which burns us all up, then that's what it's going to do. Um, and so we really more... should. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. We, we should look to protect the people and animals and, you know, all the beauty of God's creation on earth right now. Um, and yeah, mourn the loss of beautiful environments and bountiful harvests. Um, but also with the understanding that like, you know, we are the underdogs here if we're going up against nature. <laughs> Definitely. I guess the context there's like in me, there's a little bit of a split between nature and earth and like nature is all the microorganisms and the people that really don't, or the, the beings that really don't have a say <laughs> in this battle that's being waged between humans and earth <laughs> and humans are fighting a losing battle. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if I were to add to this last section, I would just say that I'm far more mindful of uh, food when I eat it. I'm far more thankful for the people who, like the author, have dedicated their lives to food and to farming and to making a system where I can get access to so much food and nutrition with so little effort. Um, but I'm also far more mindful of waste and I'm far more mindful of, you know, making sure that I actually use all of the groceries I buy every week as opposed to throwing away half of them because they're old. Um, and so I would just say that I'm, I'm far more mindful of the need for sustainability and I'm trying to move myself that direction, which is a lot easier now that I live in San Francisco where you know, we compost things and we recycle and, um, you know, food is really expensive if you eat out. So it's a lot easier to, <laughs> um, maybe not eat as much as I would otherwise. Um, it didn't clear up necessarily any misconceptions for me. I think like you said, Zach, it just gave me a much more broad education on the issue, which I really appreciate because I enjoy talking about and engaging, um, with those things. Especially, as I mentioned to you both earlier, um, one of my uncles works um, as a dairy farmer in Kansas and owns a few farms. And so my family has dealt with farming on a more personal level. And while I haven't um, farmed myself, I've you know visited the farms and I've seen sort of their livelihood and by extension, my livelihood um, being connected to the earth and connected to animals. Um, and so that, that's a beautiful thing. And that's why I said at the top of the pod, this is one of my favorite books. Good book. Agree. Speaking of books, next week, <laughs> next month, we're going to do another book. Alexis, it's uh, your turn to choose. So why don't you talk about it? It's my turn. Yay. Um, so next month, we are going to be reading Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, published in 2017, author Rennie Edo Lodge. I am probably mispronouncing the first name. It's R-E-N-I. So it's not lost on me that we are, uh, in fact, two-thirds white people. I am a white person. The book is, so is, is Alexis. Uh, Rotor's white. black. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess people don't necessarily know. <laughs> um, so it's not it's not lost on me, but I thought long and hard um, and got some good advice about 
us bringing this book to this platform and having this conversation and um you know emma watson read it on on her book club and you know she's white so we can we can do whatever right uh no i'm just kidding but um basically this book is the shit all right i'm gonna read a little um what's it excerpt What's it called? Yeah, well, no, like a like a summary, I guess. So in 2014, award-winning journalist Rennie Edo Lodge wrote about her frustration with the way that discussions of race and racism in Britain were being led by those who weren't affected by it. She posted a piece on her blog entitled Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Her words hit a nerve. The post went viral and comments flooded in from others desperate to speak up about their own experiences. Galvanized by this clear hunger for open discussion, she decided to dig into the source of those feelings, exploring issues from eradicated black history to the political purpose of white dominance, whitewashed feminism to the inextricable link between class and race. Rennie Edo Lodge offers a timely and essential new framework for how to see, acknowledge, and counter racism. It is a searing, illuminating, absolutely necessary exploration of what it is to be a person of color in Britain today. And I'm sure there are a lot of similarities for what it's like to be a black person in America today. Um, but anyway, it was named one of the best books of 2017 by NPR, The Guardian, The Observer, and most importantly, Hermione Granger read it. So, read it. Sorry, I just finished <laughs> Harry Potter. So like, it's my life. <laughs> she thinks Snape was an incel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, Zach, I kind of researched it a little bit, and, like, Are we're not the first. Ah, oh, damn. Okay. I thought some I people, stumbled onto that idea. <laughs> some people call Slytherins Slytherin cells. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. Also, there's this, like, really, um, I don't, I don't actually know, like, how prevalent it is, but there's a theory that Snape is a trans woman. Not, we're not that podcast. <laughs> I know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, wow, the rabbit hole of Harry Potter on the internet is so bonkers. But anyway, so we really, really want this to be like a book club, at least I do personally, so it would be really cool if you could um, use your terrible Amazon Prime membership for the good to read a book (laughs) about about the black struggle in in Britain slash America. But yeah, so I'll actually you know, try to get this out on social media, which I failed at the first time, but it's, it's totally fine. We'll do it. And you should totally get the book and you should read every single book with us for the rest of time. I'll put it in the episode description too. This is a short one. You know, this is, you know, if you're going to jump on for a book, why not, why not jump on for the one with the most controversial name? It's also the shortest. <laughs> is it the shortest? I think so. Is that how the most controversial name? Map destruction. Weapons of math destruction and the grand food bargain. What are what's controversial about either of those things? <laughs> now read to me this title and ask the same question. <laughs> I'm excited, Alexis. I'm looking forward to it. Me I'm very excited too. as well. Also, does Amazon sell books? Is it a is it a book thing? They sell everything. It's a jungle. And they can get it to you on the same day you order it. But I'm not trying to promote Amazon, okay? Yo, and did y'all hear podcast. the same day delivery is about to be the norm? Like for all Amazon deliveries in the world? That was announced by Bezos, or that was talked about by Bezos or somebody high up in the company recently. That sounds sustainable to me. That's Anyone who works there who listens to this is going to be like, wow, this is not a joke because it's actually terrible. Yo, for real, <laughs> I'm reading a, um, so one of the books that I, I was reading until I started this podcast and now I've kind of been reading it off and on, it's called Nomadland 
It's about um, old people that uh, can no longer afford to retire, so they live in RVs and travel around the country. And Amazon fucking recruits <laughs> these people and, like, very hardly manipulates them with newsletters and, like, social media posts and, like, I don't know. It's just really in poor form and, and disgusting to me the way Amazon recruits people to work in seasonal warehouse jobs around the country. It's called Camper Force. Maybe maybe God. I'm just getting like the most jaded perspectives on it in this book, but it really seems awful. Like people will break the tendon in their thumb um, from grabbing all day, uh, and Amazon just fired them because they were too slow now. <laughs> but like they broke th- uh, anyway. It's pretty bad. Wow. Good book. Well, we will prepare our legal team for the uh, slap suit against our podcast. And in the meantime, please do get that book. Uh, remind us of the name one more time, Alexis. Yes. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Yes. Please go and buy that book on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, and we are yeah, preferably to not Amazon about... actually. Yeah, just pirate it. <laughs> uh, no. Get it from Amazon. Let's let this lady legal. get her coin. Come on. You're right. And that's why we're go through the evil. We're bleaching out our name. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alexis. My pleasure, dude. <laughs> thank you, Zach. I'm sorry, I'm tired. I'm on Eastern thank time, and these two these two fools have no consideration for the fact that I'm on Eastern time. They always forget. California okay, I've been studying. Time. I've been studying decedents estates all day, and. I just, I can't anymore. You can probably tell listeners, I feel like I've like very steadily declined <laughs> over the course of this podcast. And thank you listeners for sticking in with us. Um, we hope to see you next time. Um, also, just disclaimer, I am not black, Felt as somebody <laughs> once said on this podcast. I'm about as white as plain yogurt. Um, so... Thank you very much for sticking with us, and we look forward to next time. Reader beware! everybody welcome back to reader beware this month we are back with a book called the grand food bargain written by i'm gonna start over <laughs>